0: Section three of Youth by Leo Tolstoy Translated by C. J. Hogarth This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three chapters nine through twelve. Chapter nine. How I Prepared Myself for the Examinations On the Thursday in Easter week, Papa, my sister Katenka, and Mimi went away into the country, and no one remained in my grandmother's great house but Woloda, Saint Jerome, and myself. The frame of mind which I had experienced on the day of my confession and during my subsequent expedition to the monastery had now completely passed away, and left behind it only a dim, though pleasing, memory which daily became more and more submerged by the impressions of this emancipated existence. The folio-endorsed rules of my life lay concealed beneath a pile of school-books. Although the idea of the possibility of framing rules for every occasion in my life, and always letting myself be guided by them, still pleased me, since it appeared an idea at once simple and magnificent, and I was determined to make practical applications of it, I seemed somehow to have forgotten to put it into practice at once, and kept deferring doing so, until such and such a moment. At the same time I took pleasure in the thought that every idea which now entered my head could be allotted precisely to one or other of my three sections of tasks and duties—those for or to God, those for or to my neighbor, and those for or to myself. "'I can always refer everything to them,' I said to myself, as well as the many, many other ideas which occur to me on one subject or another. Yet at this period I often asked myself, was I better and more truthful when I only believed in the power of the human intellect? or am I more so now, when I am losing the faculty of developing that power, and am in doubt both as to its potency and as to its importance? To this I could return no positive answer. The sense of freedom, combined with the spring-like feeling of vague expectation to which I have referred already, so unsettled me that I could not keep myself in hand, could make none but the sorriest of preparations for my university ordeal. Thus I was busy in the schoolroom one morning, and fully aware that I must work hard, seeing that to-morrow was the day of my examination, in a subject of which I had the two whole questions still to read up. Yet no sooner had a breath of spring come wafted through the window than I felt as though there were something quite different that I wished to recall to my memory. My hands laid down my book, my feet began to move of themselves, and to set me walking up and down the room, and my head felt as though some one had suddenly touched in it a little spring and set some machine in motion—so easily and swiftly and naturally did all sorts of pleasing fancies, of which I could catch no more than the radiancy, begin coursing through it. Thus one hour, two hours, elapsed, unperceived. Even if I sat down determinedly to my book and managed to concentrate my whole attention upon what I was reading, suddenly there would sound in the corridor the footsteps of a woman and the rustle of her dress instantly everything would escape my mind, and I would find it impossible to remain still any longer, however much I knew that the woman could only be either Gasha or my grandmother's old sewing-maid moving about in the corridor. Yet suppose it should be she all at once, I would say to myself. Suppose it is beginning now, and I were to lose it. And darting out into the corridor I would find each time that it was only Gasha. Yet, for long enough afterwards I could not recall my attention to my studies. A little spring had been touched in my head, and a strange mental ferment started afresh. Again that evening I was sitting alone beside a tallow candle in my room. Suddenly I looked up for a moment, to snuff the candle or to straighten myself in my chair, and at once became aware of nothing but the darkness in the corners and the blank of the open doorway. Then I also became conscious how still the house was, and felt as though I could do nothing else than go on listening to that stillness, and gazing into the black square of that open doorway, and gradually sinking into a brown study as I sat there without moving. At intervals, however, I would get up and go downstairs and begin wandering through the empty rooms. Once I sat a long while in the small drawing-room as I listened to Gasha playing The Nightingale, with two fingers, on the piano in the large drawing-room, where a solitary candle burned. Later, when the moon was bright, I felt obliged to get out of bed and to lean out of the window, so that I might gaze into the garden and at the lighted roof of the Shepoznikoff mansion, the straight tower of our parish church, and the dark shadows of the fence and the lilac bush where they lay black upon the path. So long did I remain there that when I at length returned to bed it was ten o'clock in the morning before I could open my eyes again. In short, had it not been for the tutors who came to give me lessons, as well as for St. Jerome, who at intervals and very grudgingly applied a spur to my self-conceit, and most of all for the desire to figure as clever in the eyes of my friend Nekhludoff, who looked upon distinctions in university examinations as a matter of first-rate importance, had it not been for all these things, I say, the spring and my new freedom would have combined to make me forget everything I had ever learnt and so go through the examinations to no purpose whatsoever. CHAPTER X. THE EXAMINATION IN HISTORY On the sixteenth of April I entered for the first time and under the wing of St. Jerome the great hall of the University. I had driven there with St. Jerome in our smart Phaeton, and wearing the first frock-coat of my life, while the whole of my other clothes, even down to my socks and linen, were new and of a grander sort. When a swiss waiter relieved me of my great-coat and i stood before him in all the beauty of my attire i felt almost sorry to dazzle him so yet i had no sooner entered the bright carpeted crowded hall and caught sight of hundreds of other young men in gymnasium the russian gymnasium equals the english grammar or secondary school uniforms or frock-coats of whom but a few threw me an indifferent glance as well as at the far end some solemn-looking professors who were seated on chairs or walking carelessly about among some tables, then I at once became disabused of the notion that I should attract the general attention, while the expression of my face, which at home, and even in the vestibule of the university buildings, had denoted only a kind of vague regret that I should have to present so important and distinguished an appearance, became exchanged for an expression of the most acute nervousness and dejection. However, I soon picked up again when I perceived sitting at one of the desks a very badly untidily dressed gentleman, who, though not really old, was almost entirely grey. He was occupying a seat quite at the back of the hall, and a little apart from the rest, so I hastened to sit down beside him, and then fell to looking at the candidates for examination, and to forming conclusions about them. Many different figures and faces were there to be seen there yet, in my opinion, they all seemed to divide themselves into three classes. First of all, there were youths like myself, attending for examination in the company of their parents or tutors. Among such I could see the youngest Iwin, accompanied by Frost, and Elinka Grapp, accompanied by his old father. All youths of this class wore the early beginnings of beards, sported prominent linen sat quietly in their places, and never opened the books and notebooks which they had brought with them, but gazed at the professors and examination tables with ill-concealed nervousness. The second class of candidates were young men in gymnasium uniforms. Several of them had attained to the dignity of shaving, and most of them knew one another. They talked loudly, called the professors by their names and surnames, occupied themselves in getting their subjects ready, exchanged notebooks, climbed over desks, fetched themselves pies and sandwiches from the vestibule, and ate them then and there merely lowering their heads to the level of a desk for propriety's sake. Lastly, the third class of candidates, which seemed a small one, consisted of oldish men, some of them in frock-coats, but the majority in jackets, and with no linen to be seen. These preserved a serious demeanour, sat by themselves, and had a very dingy look. The man who had afforded me consolation by being worse dressed than myself, belonged to this class. Leaning forward upon his elbows, and running his fingers through his gray disheveled hair, as he read some book or another, he had thrown me only a momentary glance—and that not a very friendly one—from a pair of glittering eyes. Then, as I sat down, he had frowned grimly, and stuck a shiny elbow out to prevent me from coming any nearer. On the other hand, the gymnasium men were over-sociable, and I felt rather afraid of their proximity one of them did not hesitate to thrust a book into my hands, saying, "'Give that to that fellow over there, will you?' while another of them exclaimed as he pushed past me, "'By your leave, young fellow!' and a third made use of my shoulder as a prop when he wanted to scramble over a desk. All this seemed to me a little rough and unpleasant, for I looked upon myself as immensely superior to such fellows, and considered that they ought not to treat me with such familiarity. At length, the names began to be called out. The gymnasium men walked out boldly, answered their questions apparently well, and came back looking cheerful. My own class of candidates were much more diffident, as well as appeared to answer worse. Of the oldest men, some answered well, and some very poorly. When the name Semenoff was called out, my neighbor with the gray hair and glittering eyes jostled me roughly, stepped over my legs, and went up to one of the examiner's tables. It was plain from the aspect of the professor's that he answered well and with assurance. Yet, on returning to his place, he did not wait to see where he was placed on the list, but quietly collected his notebooks and departed. Several times I shuddered at the sound of the voice calling out the names, but my turn did not come in exact alphabetical order, though already names had begun to be called, beginning with I. Iconin Anteneyev suddenly shouted some one from the professor's end of the hall. "'Go on, Ikonen. You are being called,' said a tall, red-faced gymnasium student near me. "'But who is this Barteneyev, or Mortenioff or somebody? I don't know him.' "'It must be you,' whispered St. Jerome loudly in my ear. "'My name is Irtenyev,' I said to the red-faced student. "'Do you think that was the name they were calling out?' "'Yes. Why on earth don't you go up?' he replied. "'Lord, what a dandy!' he added under his breath, yet not so quietly, but that I failed to hear the words as they came wafted to me from below the desk. In front of me walked Ikonen, a tall young man of about twenty-five, who was one of those whom I had classed as oldish men. He wore a tight brown frock-coat and a blue satin tie, and had wisps of flaxen hair carefully brushed over his collar in the peasant's style. His appearance had already caught my attention when we were sitting among the desks, and had given me an impression that he was not bad-looking. Also, I had noticed that he was very talkative, yet what struck me most about his physiognomy was a tuft of queer red hairs which he had under his chin, as well as, still more, a strange habit of continually unbuttoning his waistcoat, and scratching his chest under his shirt. Behind the table to which we were summoned sat three professors, none of whom acknowledged our salutations. A youngish professor was shuffling a bundle of tickets like a pack of cards, another one, with a star on his frock-coat, was gazing hard at a gymnasium student who was repeating something at great speed about Charles the Great, and adding to each of his sentences the word NACONENCE equals the English colloquialism, you know, while a third one, an old man, in spectacles, proceeded to bend his head down as we approached, and, peering at us through his glasses, pointed silently to the tickets. I felt his glance go over both myself and Ikonen, and also felt sure that something about us had displeased him —perhaps it was Ikonen's red hairs—for, after taking another look at the pair of us, he motioned impatiently to us to be quick in taking our tickets. I felt vexed and offended—firstly, because none of the professors had responded to our bows and secondly because they evidently coupled me with ikonen under the one denomination of candidates and so were condemning me in advance on account of ikonen's red hairs i took my ticket boldly and made ready to answer but the professor's eye passed over my head and alighted upon ikonen accordingly i occupied myself in reading my ticket the questions printed on it were all familiar to me so as i silently awaited my turn I gazed at what was passing near me. Ikonen seemed in no way diffident, rather than the reverse, for in reaching for his ticket he threw his body halfway across the table. Then he gave his long hair a shake, and rapidly conned over what was written on his ticket. I think he had just opened his mouth to answer when the professor with the star dismissed the gymnasium student with a word of commendation, and then turned and looked at Ikonen. At once the latter seemed taken back, and stopped short for about two minutes there was a dead silence. "'Well,' said the professor in the spectacles. Once more Ikonen opened his mouth, and once more remained silent. "'Come. You are not the only one to be examined. Do you mean to answer, or do you not?' said the youngish professor. But Ikonen did not even look at him. He was gazing fixedly at his ticket, and uttered not a single word. The professor in the spectacles scanned him through his glasses, then over them, then without them for indeed he had time to take them off, to wipe their lenses carefully, and to replace them. Still not a word from Ikonin. All at once, however, a smile spread itself over his face, and he gave his long hair another shake. Next he reached across the table, laid down his ticket, looked at each of the professors in turn and then at myself, and finally, wheeling round on his heels, made a gesture with his hand and returned to the desks. The professors stared blankly at one another. Bless the fellow," said the youngish professor. What an original! It was now my turn to move towards the table, but the professors went on talking in undertones among themselves as though they were unaware of my presence. At the moment I felt firmly persuaded that the three of them were engrossed solely with the question of whether I should merely pass the examination or whether I should pass it well, and that it was only swagger which made them pretend that they did not care either way and behave as though they had not seen me. When at length the professor in the spectacles turned to me with an air of indifference and invited me to answer, I felt hurt, as I looked at him, to think that he should have so undeceived me. Wherefore I answered brokenly at first. In time, however, things came easier to my tongue, and inasmuch as all the questions bore upon Russian history, which I knew thoroughly, I ended with eclat and even went so far in my desire to convince the professors that I was not Ikonen, and that they must not in any way confound me with him, as to offer to draw a second ticket. The professor in the spectacles, however, merely nodded his head, said that will do, and marked something in his register. On returning to the desks I at once learnt from the gymnasium men, who somehow seemed to know everything, that I had been placed fifth. CHAPTER Eleven, MY EXAMINATION IN MATHEMATICS At the subsequent examinations I made several new acquaintances in addition to the Grapps, whom I considered unworthy of my notice, and Iwin, who for some reason or other avoided me. With some of these new friends I grew quite intimate, and even Iconin plucked up sufficient courage to inform me, when we next met, that he would have to undergo re-examination in history the reason for his failure this time being that the professor of that faculty had never forgiven him for last year's examination, and had, indeed, almost killed him for it. Semenov, who was destined for the same faculty as myself, the faculty of mathematics, avoided every one up to the very close of the examinations. Always leaning forward upon his elbows and running his fingers through his gray hair, he sat silent and alone. Nevertheless, When called up for examination in mathematics—he had no companion to accompany him—he came out second. The first place was taken by a student from the first gymnasium, a tall, dark, lanky, pale-faced fellow who wore a black, folded cravat and had his cheeks and forehead dotted all over with pimples. His hands were shapely and slender, but their nails were so bitten to the quick that the finger-ends looked as though they had been tied round with strips of thread. All this seemed to me splendid, and wholly becoming to a student of the first gymnasium. He spoke to every one, and we all made friends with him. To me, in particular, his walk, his every movement, his lips, his dark eyes—all seemed to have in them something extraordinary and magnetic. On the day of the mathematical examination I arrived earlier than usual at the hall. I knew the syllabus well, yet there were two questions in the algebra which my tutor had managed to pass over and which were therefore quite unknown to me. If I remember rightly, they were the theory of combinations and Newton's binomial. I seated myself on one of the back benches and pored over the two questions, but inasmuch as I was not accustomed to working in a noisy room, and had even less time for preparation than I had anticipated, I soon found it difficult to take in all that I was reading. "'Here he is. This way, Nekhludoff," said Woloda's familiar voice behind me. I turned and saw my brother and Dmitri, their gowns unbuttoned and their hands waving a greeting to me, threading their way through the desks. A moment's glance would have sufficed to show any that they were second-course students, persons to whom the university was as a second home. The mere look of their open gowns expressed at once disdain for the mere candidate and a knowledge that the mere candidate's soul was filled with envy and admiration of them. I was charmed to think that every one near me could now see that I knew two real Second Course students, wherefore I hastened to meet them half-way. Wiloda, of course, could not help vaunting his superiority a little. "Hello, you smug,' he said. "'Haven't you been examined yet?' "'No.' "'Well, what are you reading? Aren't you sufficiently primed?' "'Yes, except in two questions. I don't understand them at all.' "'Eh, what?' and Woloda straightway began to expound to me Newton's binomial, but so rapidly and unintelligibly, that, suddenly reading in my eyes certain misgivings as to the soundness of his knowledge, he glanced also at Dmitri's face. Clearly he saw the same misgivings there, for he blushed hotly, though still continuing his involved explanations. "'No. Hold on, Woloda, and let me try to do it,' put in Dmitri at length with a glance at the professor's corner, as he seated himself beside me. I could see that my friend was in the best of humours. This was always the case with him when he was satisfied with himself and was one of the things in him which I liked best. Inasmuch as he knew mathematics well and could speak clearly, he hammered the question so thoroughly into my head that I can remember it to this day. Hardly had he finished when St. Jerome said to me in a loud whisper, "'A vous, Nicolas? and i followed ikonen out from among the desks without having had an opportunity of going through the other question of which i was ignorant at the table which we now approached were seated two professors while before the blackboard stood a gymnasium student who was working some formula aloud and knocking bits off the end of the chalk with his two vigorous strokes he even continued writing after one of the professors had said to him enough and bidden us draw our tickets "'Suppose I get the theory of combinations,' I thought to myself as my tremulous fingers took a ticket from among a bundle wrapped in torn paper. Ikonin for his part, reached across the table with the same assurance and the same sidelong movement of his whole body as he had done at the previous examination. Taking the topmost ticket without troubling to make further selection, he just glanced at it, then frowned angrily. "'I always draw this kind of thing,' he muttered. I looked at mine. Horrors. It was the theory of combinations. "'What have you got?' whispered Ikonen at this point. I showed him. "'Oh, I know that,' he said. "'Will you make an exchange, then?' "'No. Besides, it would be all the same for me if I did,' he contrived to whisper, just as the professor called us up to the blackboard. "'I don't feel up to anything today. "'Then everything is lost,' I thought to myself. Instead of the brilliant result which I had anticipated. I should be forever covered with shame more so even than Ikenen suddenly under the very eyes of the professor Ikenen turned to me snatched my ticket out of my hands and handed me his own i looked at his ticket it was newton's binomial the professor was a youngish man with a pleasant clever expression of face an effect chiefly due to the prominence of the lower part of his forehead what are you exchanging tickets gentlemen he said no "'He only gave me his to look at, Professor,' answered Ikonen, and sure enough the word Professor was the last word that he uttered there. Once again he stepped backwards towards me from the table. Once again he looked at each of the Professors in turn, and then at myself. Once again he smiled faintly, and once again he shrugged his shoulders as much as to say, "'It is no use, my good sirs.' Then he returned to the desks. Subsequently I learnt that this was the third year he had vainly Attempted to matriculate. I answered my question well, for I had just read it up, and the professor kindly informing me that I had done even better than was required, placed me fifth. Chapter twelve. My examination in Latin. All went well until my examination in Latin. So far, a gymnasium student stood first on the list, Semenov second, and myself third. On the strength of it, I had begun to swagger a little and to think that for all my youth I was not to be despised. From the first day of the examinations I had heard every one speak with awe of the professor of Latin, who appeared to be some sort of a wild beast who battened on the financial ruin of young men—of those, that is to say, who paid their own fees—and spoke only in the Greek and Latin tongues. However, St. Jerome, who had coached me in Latin, spoke encouragingly, and I myself thought that since I could translate Cicero and certain parts of Horace without the aid of a lexicon, I should do no worse than the rest. Yet things proved otherwise. All the morning the air had been full of rumors concerning the tribulations of candidates who had gone up before me—rumors of how one young fellow had been accorded a knot, another one a single mark only, a third one greeted with abuse and threatened with expulsion, and so forth. Only Semenov and the first gymnasium student had, as usual, gone up quietly and returned to their seats with five marks credited to their names. Already I felt a prescience of disaster when Ikonin and myself found ourselves summoned to the little table at which the terrible professor sat in solitary grandeur. The terrible professor turned out to be a little, thin, bilious-looking man with hair long and greasy, and a face expressive of extraordinary sullenness. Handing Ikonin a copy of Cicero's orations, he bid him translate. To my great astonishment Iconin not only read off some of the Latin, but even managed to construe a few lines to the professor's prompting. At the same time, conscious of my superiority over such a feeble companion, I could not help smiling a little, and even looking rather contemptuous, when it came to a question of analysis, and Ikonin, as on previous occasions plunged into a silence which promised never to end. I had hoped to please the professor by that knowing, slightly sarcastic smile of mine but as a matter of fact I contrived to do quite the contrary. "'Evidently you know better than he, since you are laughing,' he said to me in bad Russian. "'Well, we shall see. Tell me the answer, then.' Later I learnt that the professor was Ikonin's guardian, and that Ikonin actually lived with him. I lost no time in answering the question in syntax which had been put to Ikonin, but the professor only pulled a long face and turned away from me. "'Well, your turn will come presently, and then we shall see how much you know,' he remarked, without looking at me, but proceeding to explain to Ikonen the point on which he had questioned him. "'That will do,' he added, and I saw him put down four marks to Aikonen in his register. "'Come,' I thought to myself, "'he cannot be so strict after all.' When Ikonin had taken his departure the professor spent fully five minutes—five minutes which seemed to me five hours in setting his books and tickets in order, in blowing his nose, in adjusting and sprawling about on his chair, in gazing down the hall, and in looking here, there, and everywhere, in doing everything, in fact, except once letting his eye rest upon me. Yet even that amount of dissimulation did not seem to satisfy him, for he next opened a book and pretended to read it, for all the world as though I were not there at all. I moved a little nearer him and gave a cough. Ah, yes. You too, of course. "'Well, translate me something,' he remarked, handing me a book of some kind. "'But no. You had better take this.' And, turning over the leaves of a Horace, he indicated to me a passage which I should never have imagined possible of translation. "'I have not prepared this,' I said. "'Oh! Then you only wish to answer things which you have got by heart, do you? Indeed. No, no. Translate me that.' I started to grope for the meaning of the passage but each questioning look which I threw at the professor was met by a shake of the head, a profound sigh, and an exclamation of, No, no! Finally he banged the book, to with such a snap that he caught his finger between the covers. Angrily releasing it, he handed me a ticket containing questions and grammar, and, flinging himself back in his chair, maintained a menacing silence. I should have tried to answer the questions had not the expression of his face so clogged my tongue that nothing seemed to come from it right no no, that's not it at all he suddenly exclaimed in his horrible accent as he altered his posture to one of leaning forward upon the table and playing with the gold signet ring which was nearly slipping from the little finger of his left hand that is not the way to prepare for serious study my good sir fellows like yourself think that once they have a gown and a blue collar to their backs they have reached the summit of all things and become students no no my dear sir a subject needs to be studied fundamentally and so on, and so on. During this speech, which was uttered with a clipped sort of intonation, I went on staring dully at his lowered eyelids. Beginning with a fear lest I should lose my place as third on the list, I went on to fear lest I should pass at all. Next these feelings became reinforced by a sense of injustice, injured self-respect, and unmerited humiliation, while the contempt which I felt for the professor as some one not quite according to my ideas a fact which i deduced from the shortness strength and roundness of his nails flared up in me more and more and turned all my other feelings to sheer animosity happening presently to glance at me and to note my quivering lips and tear-filled eyes he seemed to interpret my agitation as a desire to be accorded my marks and dismissed wherefore with an air of relenting he said in the presence of another professor who had just approached very well I will accord you a pass which signified two marks, although you do not deserve it. I do so simply out of consideration for your youth, and in the hope that, when you begin your university career, you will learn to be less light-minded." The concluding phrase, uttered in the hearing of the other professor who at once turned his eyes upon me as though remarking, "'There, you see, young man,' completed my discomfiture. For a moment a mist swam before my eyes a mist in which the terrible professor seemed to be far away as he sat at his table while for an instant a wild idea danced through my brain. What if I DID do such a thing, I thought to myself? What would come of it? However, I did not do the thing in question, but on the contrary made a bow of peculiar reverence to each of the professors, and with a slight smile on my face, presumably the same smile as that with which I had derided Ikonen, turned away from the table. This piece of unfairness affected me so powerfully at the time that, had I been a free agent, I should have attended for no more examinations. My ambition was gone, since now I could not possibly be third, and I therefore let the other examinations pass without any exertion or even agitation on my part. In the general list I still stood fourth, but that failed to interest me, since I had reasoned things out to myself, and come to the conclusion that to try for first place was stupid even bad form—that, in fact, it was better to pass neither very well nor very badly, as Woloda had done. This attitude I decided to maintain throughout the whole of my university career, notwithstanding that it was the first point on which my opinion had differed from that of my friend Dmitri. Yet, to tell the truth, my thoughts were already turning towards a uniform, a mortar-board, and the possession of a droshky of my own, a room of my own, and, above all, freedom of my own. And certainly the prospect had its charm. End of section three. Recording by Bill Borst.